everybody, and welcome to Game Changers with Harry Shearer. Harry. Hey, Ricky. Harry, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. I've been trying to you get you. You did invite me, didn't you? I. Okay. Well, actually, this time Judith called me, but I did invite you about a year and a half ago okay. after we met at David Lander's um, anniversary party. Yeah, it just took a long time to say yes. It just, <laughs> you were hard to get. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be hard to get? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so Harry, there's so many things to talk about that I, I didn't sneak to you before we went live, but first mm -hmm. of all, I did tell you my son's name is Harry and that's yeah. true. Yeah. So I, I love that about you. I also didn't tell you that in 1984, I was on Saturday night live for 10 seconds with Billy Crystal and you came on right at the first time he did Buddy Young Jr. Um, and you did a 60 minute segment with, um, with, uh, Short and Chris Guest. with, with Martin Short. Yes. And, and, yeah. uh, I was and, and, um, and I, was that the first time that he did Therm? Um, yeah. And oh, he, yeah. Right. Yeah. He so, invented Nathan for that. He invented Nathan for that. And that was the most brilliant sketch I ended mm -hmm. up getting. Billy Crystal upgraded me and gave me a bit and I, it got cut, but it was worth it to sit there and watch. You guys were brilliant. Yeah. Um, but also, okay, I'm going to start with all the many two degrees. <laughs> you were a child actor. You, we're going to talk about that. But you were the original Eddie Haskell, yes? Yes. I, in the pilot, <coughs> pardon me, he didn't have the name Eddie Haskell. He had another name, which I don't remember at this point. Uh, but I'm sure somebody can go to IDB, IMDB and get the wrong answer. Uh, <laughs> and I was working as a kid actor. Um, All right, wait, tell me that story. How, how, how did you break into showbiz? I know Abbott and Costello, but how did that happen? Well, it wasn't Abbott and Costello. It was the first thing. First thing was the Jack Benny program. And uh, I had a piano teacher when I was starting when I was four. Uh -huh. And I think that my recalcitrance in, at uh, practicing and things like that sort of just uh, encouraged her to change careers. And her daughter was an actress. So she thought, I'll be a children's agent because she had the connections. So right. she came to my folks and said, Can you mind if I try to get Harry some work? And they were like, yeah, sure. Uh, now, wait, but, folks, not showbiz. No, not at all. They were both uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, uh, anything but showbiz. Uh, so eight months went by, and it was sort of a house joke. Have we heard from Mrs. McMillan yet? And then one day she called and had a reading for me at the Jack Benny program. And I, I went. That photograph. I'm going to post it. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. And I went up to the, uh, the Taft building, which I think is still there at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Uh huh. Went up to his office and his uh, producer read me. And I, I was uh, a good reader. I'd had um, private school for the first three grades. So I was really slamming at reading. <laughs> So I could pick up a script and read it and read it aloud, you know, more importantly. Wow. And so I got the job and I worked for him for eight years. Um, and Costello okay. go to Mars and The Rogue were my my two movies as a child. Okay, Richard Burton as a co-star. What are you? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Well, that was my gamut. Abbott and Costello go to Mars and The Rogue. You know, <laughs> filling in the, filling in the rest is just as as, as read. Um, you know, I don't remember the adults so much on that on the the robe. I remember uh, uh, I was uh, there for a, a couple of scenes with another kid mm -hmm. who was the director's son. These things happen, <laughs> and uh, he was sick. 
So what was supposed to be like a two or three day gig turned into a two week thing. I'd show up at the lot. Uh, I, I got full body makeup. I got my hair curled and then sat around reading Variety for two weeks. And the most memorable thing about that uh, job was the Fox Commissary, which at that time was a real, real thing. The, 20th right. Fox, the Commissary in the 20th Century Fox lot. And it was my introduction to what has become one of my two or three favorite foods ever since, roast duck. I had roast duck every day for two weeks. That's what I remember about the robe. Not oh the, the, the duck. Did you ever go to the Peking Duck House in New York? Of course you have. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, it's still there actually in Chinatown. It's pretty great. Maybe if you I like it, the yeah. duck, there yeah. you go. I love duck. Um, oh. That was the best duck I ever had in the, in the world. Wow. Was a recipe that was invented by uh, a guy named Michael Jordan, not the one you're thinking of, uh, okay. opened Emerald's second restaurant in New Orleans. And this duck stayed on that menu through eight chefs because, you you know, we, we all said, if you take this off the menu, call the bomb squad because... We're very serious about our food. Food is a very, is, is a huge issue. Well, um, yeah, for, for better or worse. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a, a, a an issue that uh, plagues them. But for me, it's like, give me some decent food a, a couple times a day, you know? Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. We're in COVID. Food is, everything's become very weird. You and Judith are traveling in, in COVID. No? In between LA and New Orleans, just between homes. Okay, but how is that? How was it getting on a plane? It was okay. Yeah, wasn't scary. Not the way we did it. <laughs> Do you have a hazmat suit? No, no, I don't want to talk about this. Okay, all right, we don't have to talk about this. But so, are you are you restauranting in COVID? Yeah, yeah. There are restaurants in New Orleans which have outdoor seating. Mm -hmm. We feel perfectly comfortable with that, and okay. then others have takeaway. And we have, Judith has constructed a, uh, a beautiful little cafe pop-up right here in our front uh, front yard in New Orleans. Uh, and so we, you know, I'll cook, I'll, I'll cook like once a week, uh, but otherwise, yeah, we're eating pretty, pretty damn well New Orleans style. Um, yeah, I'm knocking on glass, but yeah, I mean. We're I'll have wood for you. Good, thank you. We're having about the most fortunate COVID it's possible to have, I think, because we're working. Um, we're very productive because we're not spending a lot of time driving. Uh, I'm, every day I count the bonus hours. <laughs> um, and uh, we're, we're still able to see friends. You know, we'll go to with a couple of friends to a restaurant and mask, except when we're eating and out, outside. So um, it's working out okay so far, but we got a long, long way to go. So did you hear today that somebody in the trial, one of the vaccine trials died today? Mm. Or died actually on Monday and they just released it today. Was it one of the trials that had paused? One of the, it, no, they are, oh. they are continuing this particular trial, wow. which tends to uh, imply- Dampen your interest in, dampen, dampens your interest in taking that vaccine, <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, just a mite. It seems to feed the theory that she was perhaps one of the placebo receivers because uh, else could uh, they be continuing the trial? We're, we haven't gotten, the, they haven't given us the information yet. I just heard it right before we came down today. You're, but, you're, saying, 
How, how, uh, so I lead what's called the COVID crazies. I go live every day. COVID's been very, a, a breeding ground for creativity and for connection of this kind in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but for someone like me, I live alone. I haven't traveled. It's been, um, I was saying yesterday that a lot of people I know are becoming extremely ill with things other than COVID because yeah. I think the, the COVID stress and the COVID fear is um, plaguing well, a lot. And, and the COVID fusion. The confusion is uh, created by it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. I mean, that song on, on my record, COVID-180, is about that, you know. COVID-180 from the many moods of Donald Trump. You know, I have I have not said his name in all of these months. I'm saying it because of you, Harry. Tell us about the many moods of Donald Trump. Yeah, you know what I do on my radio show? I chuckle every time I say it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Donald Trump, which it's useful. Um <laughs> On, on the aforesaid radio show, I make fun of the news. It's on the show. The show on public radio stations, not NPR, uh, once a week. And so. But you are on NPR, yeah? No, no. Yeah. NPR has nothing to do with my show. Okay, uh, so you got to talk to Wikipedia because they got you wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, IMDb says I was in uh, Spaceballs, <laughs> which I was not. Um, so. I make fun of the news and there's this guy in the news that seems to demand a lot of attention, like crave it every day. So I, I comply with his wishes. And so every week I tend to write either a comedy sketch where I play all the characters, uh, a series called The Presidentis, uh, or, or I write a song and he says or does something that just screams a song, like repeating his self-description, very stable genius over and over again. That's a song. I'm sorry, that's a song. So, at the beginning of this year, I realized, see, I've written a lot of songs, of these songs, uh, and I went through them and found a bunch that I still like and thought- They're amazing, they're hysterical. But they're, they're so dense with so much information. Like, how long did it take you to, how long does it take you to write a song? Uh, the lyrics, <laughs> I usually write first. Yeah. And uh, they come pretty fast. They come pretty fast. Once I, I have to sort of suss out in my mind what style of song it's going to be, what kind of what kind of music. I, I will stop you for one second because musically, well, I'm going to stop you more than once. Musically, they are absolute. Forget the lyrics, which are gene. They are they are so beautifully produced. Yeah, I've known Malone's for years, and uh, your bones, Malone, uh-huh. and. The players on there are absolutely stellar in first oh, rate. It oh, yeah. swings, that album swings. Yeah. It's just My, I I took the songs, which were demo versions on the radio, and took them to my the guy, a producer I've worked with for years, CJ Vanston, who's just amazing and is so under-recognized for his talent. Um, brilliant arranger, brilliant keyboard player. Uh, there's a trombone solo on one of the songs. That's him on the keys, emulating a trombone. Uh, fool, fools everybody. Um, wow. So, uh, and, and then, so I'll, I'll, as soon as I figured out, okay, this is this kind of song, so mm-hmm. the lyric lines are about this length, then it's pretty easy to write the lyrics because I know what the what the deal is. Okay, very stable genius. It's a song about geniuses. Um, and then I'm, I'm just trying to, then I'll sit down at the piano with the lyrics in front of me and um, just look for chords that seem interesting as a, as a set of, of chords, you know, 
And then the last step is having the chords try singing the words against them and see if it comes up with a decent melody. If it, if it doesn't, then I'll change a chord or two to make it a better, a better melody. So it's a three, it's a three part process. It's a three part process. And so what's your, what's your highest hope for this? I mean, it's dropping on October 30th. Mm -hmm. Got four days. Well, but although with the way the election results are going, before this is over. Yeah. And there'll be the militias, there'll be everything. <laughs> so that period between the election and January 22nd, if things go the way I know, I hope, are going to be a pretty interesting time in this country, no? Well, it's going to be a pretty interesting time in this country one way or the other. Uh, okay. There are going to be some happy people. There are going to be some angry people. Uh, let's hope they both keep it under control. Um, I, 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 you know, I have dark thoughts and light thoughts about what might happen. Uh, which I don't particularly think I should share because people don't need any more dark thoughts. Yeah. You know, um, I, I do think, let me, let me suggest one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think Donald Trump, oh, wait, I, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. has, uh, built his, and I'm going to use a term of art here, his adult persona. <laughs> Uh, around the idea of being a winner. Mm. I think that if that's really true, if that's really as deep as I think it goes, which is mm -hmm. pretty shallow, but, you know, for him, deep, um, <laughs> at, uh, losing the biggest thing in the world, mm -hmm. on the biggest stage in the world, in front of the most people mm -hmm. in the world, is going to be highly destructive to him personality-wise. And I think there may be something serious that happens uh, in, the, in the aftermath of that. Um, I'm not predicting anything. I'm just thinking. Interesting. This is who this guy thinks he is. And this is the world saying, no, you're not. Now, the last time I saw something like that mm -hmm. was in Octo October, four years ago. Uh, there's a thing in New York every year called the Catholic Charities Dinner. It's a white mm -hmm. Al Smith dinner. It's white tie. All the swells and the elite of Manhattan finance and real estate. I was uh, never invited. Nor was I. Uh, and Trump forever has yearned to be accepted by that group. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a pisher from Queens, let's face it. And, uh, that's what I hear his father saying to him in his head. I th it's why I, that's why I think he has to talk so loud, is to talk so <laughs> he can hear himself over his father yelling at him, Pisher, you're never going to be anything but a Pisher from Queens. Who you're a Pisher from Queens. And uh, so he craves the acceptance of these New York real estate elites. Mm -hmm. They have always looked down on him as an arriviste and a you know crass, vulgar guy. As he, he is. Yeah. As he is. Yeah, they're right about that. So uh, he and Hillary Clinton are at this Catholic Charities Dinner, mm -hmm. and the presidential candidates are invited every four years, and they're supposed to deliver these pleasantly self-deprecating remarks, you know, to, you know, that thing. Mm -hmm. And he gets up to deliver his remarks, and they boo him. Wow. National television. Wow. So that was a little mini. His response to that. 
just stands and start just reads as stiffly as possible his lines, you know, to get through it. But you know, it, it would be worth watching it again. It's probably uh, on on you know YouTube if you check uh, Al Smith Dinner 2016. Wow. It's really fitting how he reacted because of course that's going to be a miniature of how he reacts on November whatever uh, if it goes against him, you know. But do you think? for a moment that he will actually be in acceptance of, I, I don't think no matter what happens, I think they'll literally have to physically cart him out of the White House. I don't think he's going to accept it at all. Well, that that makes an assumption, which I think is a dangerous assumption, that when, okay. he, that when he's cast doubt about whether he's going to do that or not, that he's telling the truth. Hmm. And I don't, I don't think the record uh, bears that. The record account. show that's never happened once ever. Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's always trying to throw sand in the gears, uh, mm -hmm. and and rarely is is got the balls to carry it out. Um, so uh, I think it's it's a, it's not a safe bet, but it's a good bet that that's what that is. You know, mm -hmm. I, I my mind goes back to. Uh, some time ago when there was another president that I was making fun of a lot and, and for many years after he, he left the, the I, I love the, your profile of, of Nixon with that note oh. that you had was fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, uh, I, I did this series called uh, Nixon's the One for uh, mm -hmm. British TV where we acted out the crazier parts of the Nixon White House tapes. Um, but what wasn't in there because it wasn't on tape is late in his presidency, late in Watergate, he started drinking, started drinking fairly heavily, was known to walk the halls of the White House at night talking to the paintings. Could you give us a little of that? <laughs> I don't know the lines. Give me the lines, I'll do it. I, I don't know. Anything is next. Give us anything. You know, Abe, you had to go through a lot of shit, but you never had to go through this. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I did the drunk uh, Nixon once in that series. There's a, a conversation he has with Kissinger, and Kissinger has come back from a party, and Nixon has been alone drinking. And you hear on the tape that he's got this thing going. Um, but I was I was trying to figure out the body language of the drunk Nixon uh, because he's just such he was always such a tight, you know, inhibited figure, and I thought. Maybe he learned how to be loose by watching Jack Benny and Bob Hope. <laughs> and so when he got drunk, he could get a little bit Jack Benny and Bob Hope. You know. But anyway, uh, so in that period, it's well known or it's established fairly well that the Secretary of Defense sent out an edict to uh, everybody under him uh, saying certain kinds of orders from the president involving certain kinds of weapons are not to be executed without being countersigned by me. Uh, and I think it's quite possible that the similar thing is happening now. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I, I would like to hope that that is true. Um, and you know, uh, Trump's, <laughs> Trump's uh, supporters, <laughs> that's the deep state, and the rest of us will say that's the Constitution. So there you go. <laughs> so, 
Oh God, I just, speaking of the constitution, I just had this this conversation with my mother who's independent. And she was saying, I was talking, we were talking about Coney Baloney. Thank you, Cindy Beagle for that. Um, who you might know from the Vernon Shirley days. But anyway, um, we were talking about, I said, talked about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Oh, she'll never do that because it wasn't in the constitution. These it, these people that are following, they, they anyway, I, I can't get started on that. We, we, we're not gonna go down that road right now. Don't, don't, do, don't rant me, baby, don't rant me. <laughs> I can't. I know I can't get started with that. So, yeah. all right. So, so, all right. So, let's talk. Let's finish up with the album first, and then we're going to go back. So, yeah. so, okay. So, on October thirtieth, people can get it by. They can get it where? Tell us where they can get they it. Get it uh, on CD at. Uh, and uh, where where do they sell CDs now? I don't Some, know. CD Baby. Yeah. 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 And uh, you can get it uh, streaming through all your music, or as they say in the uh, commercials. Mm -hmm wherever you get your music. <laughs> and uh, the songs have been dropping, I've been dropping the songs, I should say, uh, once a week on YouTube, so you can get them there. Okay, uh, I saw the wrong ones. Your person sent me ones with just a card, but there are full blown, full. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I went to a, a visual effects studio in Sydney, because Judith was touring Australia just before they closed yeah. the place. And uh, so I was with her. The day before I left, I, I got introduced to a guy who runs a uh, visual effects studio there. And I said, look, these songs are all sung in the voice. All the songs on the record are sung in the voice of Donald Trump, except for the end one, uh, which is sung in the voice of uh, Leonard Cohen's brother, Jim. Uh, <laughs> and it's a good song called He Lies. And uh, so I said, I... All the songs sung in the voice of Donald Trump. I needed the video to look like it's Donald Trump singing it. Can you do that? I said, yeah. I said, I don't want to be wearing makeup. I don't need enough of that. So we did it another way. And uh, it's kind of freakish. Okay. Because the one I saw with just the card, you're like in the background blurry yeah. kind yeah, yeah, yeah. of. Yeah. That's a lyric video, which is a style of video that people do when they can't afford to do a real one. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to read off a couple of my favorite titles for those of you at home who are who are waiting for it. I can't believe I'm me. Stormy Daniels, number one son, COVID 180. This album is absolutely hysterical. And as I said before, the quality of the music and the musicianship and the big band and the swing. What? No, I'm going to get I'm going to just leave the camera for a moment. Yes. Go get I'm and show. Here. I'm still here. I'm OK. Just, Harry's just, still yeah. here. A special effect. Oh, yay. Can you show us? Oh, yay. This is me as Donald <laughs> Trump in the video Son-in-Law. No, it is not. Yeah, it is. No, it, stop. Yeah. I've been looking at that picture for a week. That is not you. Yeah, that is me. No, not for one second yeah. do I believe you. You're lying like he lies. I can't lie like he lies. Nobody can lie like he lies. That is you? Yeah, that's me with a... Uh, an interface of uh, two or three different uh, technologies. So, but it's my behavior, it's my gestures, it's my everything. Oh, I'm, I, I think Alec Baldwin's out of business. I, uh, yeah. wow. right. have, you, have you seen the first five minutes of, of the Spike Lee KKK movie? No. He'd be out of business. For, oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, <come on>. <laughs> yes, wait a minute, of course I did. I saw it three times and I saw Spike speak. I, I actually love that movie though. Um, I'm just talking about the first five minutes. Yes, I, yeah, all right. Uh, we won't we won't go there, but but it was a great. But Spike did a great I just, job. I just I just wonder who cooked the scenery for him. 
And Terrence Blanchard did a great score on that movie. I love. I happen to. I happen to love that movie. Yeah. But okay. We, we. But I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I had to think about it for a minute. Because wow. um, I don't. I don't associate him with that film actually. But he had a pretty good part. Anyway. Um, okay. So, but let's talk about you. So let's go back to. So you didn't take the Eddie Haskell role, but. Ken Osmond did, and he was in my living room, and he died recently. But he didn't but, die in your living room. No, he didn't die in my living room. But I have this literary salon here that Norman did, and that Fred did, and so many of your friends, and Ken, Ken was one of them. So, so why did your parents turn you down the uh, the Leave It to Beaver? Um, it was really very sane of them. Uh, they weren't really show business parents. Uh, they said. Uh, Look, you're you're going to public school. You're still with your friends. You're working when you want to, or when you know the job comes along. But you have a kind of normal life. And if you uh, get into a series, we have to take you out of public school. We have to put you in that special school in Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know you won't see your friends as much. And uh, we just think it's better for for you to have a, a more normal life. And uh, I was fine with that. I was perfectly fine. I was working on the best show in fucking show business, Jack Benny. Uh, so what was he like? What was he like with you? Right. He was the exact opposite of the character he played on television, which is exactly what show business is all about. Right. Uh, you know, play it's, it's what I say about actors, but it's about comedians too. And you play who you're not. That's, mm -hmm. that's what the gig is. So he was generous. He was warm. Wonderful. I mean, he was crazy good to me. Uh, Minute, you know, I, I did the first three shows, and then the third show, there was a, he gave me a gift, and it was like you're in the family now. Uh, and from then on, it was, and I, he was the first person I remember making laugh. We were to read through, and um, yeah, and I, I was sitting here, and he was at the end of the table, uh, and I, I did a little thing, you know, but it was just it wasn't in the script, and it was just a little thing. And he's like this, you know, hand up in the air, roaring, head thrown back with laughter. And I just went, give me more of this, please. Just give me more of this. Wow. I, making Jack Benny laugh. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how much better it can get than that. Especially. I've been working my way down ever since. You know? <laughs> Although now you, I mean, you've worked with, um, Paul Reiner told me that Albert Brooks is the funniest person that he's ever met in his life. And that was talking behind Mel. I mean, you've worked with some besides yourself. Yeah. Yes. And and at the time that probably was true. <laughs> no, I'm serious. There was a there was a time when you could say that with a straight face and people would go, of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, so all right. So Abbott and Costello, all right, before we move on from your chat, come on, Abbott and Costello, I mean, I watched Abbott and Costello every day of my life as a kid. You must have been so envied by your friends that you were working with Abbott and Costello, no? No? I, I, well, you know, I didn't noise around uh, what I was doing, you know. Uh, Did they see you on the well, thing? Well, that, that's, it, the movie came out, I was probably in a different school by then, you know, <laughs> as long as it took for movies to come out. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, the, the, the strangest thing about that was uh, I was in the first scene mm -hmm. and, uh, and a scene with uh, Costello, never met Abbott. Um, and uh, of course, it's about them trying to build a spaceship and go to Mars. Yeah. Joke. And I never saw the whole movie because I was in the first scene. So I go, okay, thanks, I got it. 
<laughs> and uh, so years later, uh, I moved to New Orleans. And, mm -hmm. uh, somebody, I was talking to somebody either here or back in LA about uh, the movie. And they said, well, you know what happens in that film, don't you? I said, no, I have no idea. Where do you know where the rocket ends up, right? No, I have no idea. In New Orleans, at Mardi Gras. Ah, <laughs> oh. there's a fade in there. <laughs> Everything's meant to be. Yeah. Okay, so so child actor, you move on, and um, uh, so so how did the credit the credibility gap happen? Well, I'd gone to college. I quit show business to be a serious grown up. I was going to be real good at that. Were and, you? Were you a serious kid? Were you like kind of a serious kid? Aside mm -hmm. from hysterically funny? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. serious. Uh, uh, and very serious about, well, very serious. I'm, I did well in school mm -hmm. uh, and I uh, cared about that. Uh, mm -hmm. But I was also uh, working on the daily paper at, the, at UCLA and then edited the humor magazine. So I was always wasting my time usefully. Uh, <laughs> and then I tried other Political Harry is a, like because we grew up at a time when politics were like they are now, very very front and center. Were you were you political then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I went to. I didn't go to a lot. I went to a lot of meetings, mm -hmm. and I wore meetings. I cared a lot about the work as I was draft aged. And uh, did you have a number? No, I was before the lottery. I'm older than that. I'm older than the lottery. And uh, so I would go to these meetings. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I learned a lot about uh, that side of the political fence, which you could sum up as the, the really hard leftists, the, the, uh, the party people, uh, would always, were always the ones who stayed to the end of the meetings. <laughs> Everybody else had things to do and they'd say their piece and then go. And the um, and I was the one who kept saying, you know what, we have these demonstrations and the cops come and if it gets on the news at all, it's footage of the cops and the kids and what we're talking about never gets on the news. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should think right. about a different tactic, mm -hmm. you know, and that was laughed out of the, uh, out of the room. <laughs> so I realized that was, you know, but I, I didn't particularly, I had friends, I went to Century City Mm -hmm. And my friend Terry Gilliam and his girlfriend, I think she was with him at the time. She was, mm -hmm. British. she is British. Um, but I think they uh, they got hit by the cops. I think, and that was enough to get me uh, away from that. They went to Century City, which was a big one. Um, so yes, I was I was political. I I went to, to I've been to a lot of. Uh, conventions of both parties because I used to do uh, my radio show from conventions uh, and it went from shipping two huge lockers full of equipment to the convention site to taking a, a laptop wow. uh, but you know they became uh, it was during that period that they became really irrelevant uh, just TV shows just bad bad TV shows now that's all they are but uh, it's increasingly <laughs> But it was a you know it's a party for people in the in the party to just get together and drink, um, which I'm not and I don't. So, uh, but yeah, I, 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 my parents 
always talked about the news and, and politics at the dinner table. So it was something that um, was w what we did, and we did it in a civil way, you know. Are they lefties? They, my mom was a uh, labor Zionist, um, and my dad died too soon for me really to know what his politics mm -hmm. were. Um, and, the, and the most fraught conversations that we had, uh, my mom and I, were uh, over Israel. I could not understand why you'd want to put that country in the middle of the Arab world. <laughs> yeah, I know the book. I know the book. I know from the book. Stop with the book. Okay, so okay, so back to the credibility gap. How did you yeah. how did you meet uh, Michael and David? How did that happen? Well, uh, it started with uh, a bunch of. This was on this station, which was always the number two rock station in town. It could never get to number one. Like Hertz, they tried harder. Yeah, right. They they tried less harder. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't Hertz that tried harder. It was Avis. Oh, really? Let yeah. Me, oh, Avis was the try. Oh, yeah. Fifty oh. years of advertising really works. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so they tried different things. And this being the late 60s, mm -hmm. it was an era where the grown-ups uh, were perplexed by the kids. They just didn't know what it was that the kids wanted and what the, what the kids would like. And so in their desperation to try something to, to get more audience for this rock station, they decided uh, to do a news program that veered into comedy, making fun of the news. This was the 60s. Who knew? Right. <laughs> so the, the news director became the head of this. And they were still the same people. They were the news guys, but now they were doing comedy. And uh, after about... The same people? Hmm? The same people? The same people for the first three months. And then... Wow. It, they, it, they started to flag. <laughs> and uh, so we look... And I heard through a friend that they were looking for somebody. And so I, I uh, cobbled a little. Oh. And so I was the first of the non-news people hired. And then uh, a woman who was a friend of that show did some of the women's voices on that show said, there's this really freakishly funny guy who's on my answering service, answering services for the kids out there <laughs> where live people would answer your phone when you weren't home and take messages and then deliver them to you when you called in. And she said, there's this guy who's just so funny on my answering service. And that was David Lander. Wow. And he joined us next. And then David said, there's this guy I went to school with, McKean, and he's funny and he does music. And so McKean joined us next. And then one of the original news guys stayed with us for a while, Richard Beebe. So we worked as a foursome for a while. And then we worked as a threesome uh, until the end of that. That lasted for a long time for you, though. That was years, yeah? It was a few years, yeah. Uh, we we broke up when they went off to do uh, Laverne and Shirley. Okay, so let's so Gary Marshall also in the living room loved Gary, loved the Gary, and uh, um, so Laverne and Shirley didn't like ring your bell a whole lot, from what I understand. Um, <laughs> That's a nice one, buddy. Um, Laverne and Shirley. This was for the four actors involved. Uh, like a little six-week gig, uh, except 
that it's the only television show in the history of American television to premiere at number one. Unbelievable. And the big concrete door with the words seven years comes down, you know, and now this is your job for the next seven fucking years. Um, and I think that took its toll on everybody uh, who was there. I got out, but uh, no, I, I, I didn't particularly, um, Gary would come around every once. I would write with David and Michael, their characters, uh, roles. And uh, Gary would come around every once in a while and say, you'll be the guy from the DJ from the drive-in. And I think in a million fucking years, Gary. Uh, you know, it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, my friend Cindy Beagle was a writer on that show, and Cindy, the other Cindy, was actually here, and uh, also all kinds of things. Okay, but then you went and you wrote on one of my favorite shows of all time, and it's going to make me cry to think about it, but Fernwood Tonight, it just does not get any funnier than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fred Willard uh, later became a friend, and a funnier person I don't know that that can be and yeah. Martin Mull on that show and I heard you say something on an interview where you were saying that he only did it to fund his art is that true I think he only did show business to fund his art yeah I think show business was a way of, of giving him the time and the and the ease to be able to pursue his painting yeah I I, I think that's pretty much true um it may not have started out that way but when he started getting serious about painting, I think that's what it. it uh, so what was it? He's a wonderful painter. He's a really wonderful painter. When do you, um, do you know his work at all? Excuse me. Do you know Martin's work at all? I don't know his art at all. Oh my God, he's really good. He's really really good. Well, if if he did that to fund that, and mm -hmm. I know how good he was at that, I can only imagine how great he is at that. Yeah, yeah, he, he's an excellent painter, excellent artist. Wow. So when I met Norman, you know, most people, when they meet Norman, they say, all in the family, all in the family. And, and I immediately went to Mary Hartman and Fernwood tonight because in those days we didn't have DVRs, VCRs. We had to watch live. Never missed one episode. The most brilliant, happy kind in the orchestra. I mean, I mean, just everything about that show was just genius. How was it to work on? It was great. Martin and I would would teamed up for a lot of the time working on uh, the opening sections that he did with Fred. Um, and, you know, a daily show, you're not going to get the ball out of the park all the time. Um, and I see scripts come in and think, well, good luck with that one. And then Freddie would take it and run with it and just do magic with it. And that, that was, I had already toured with Fred and become, Oh, uh, the credibility gap toured with the Ace Trucking Company. Oh wow, which was wonderful. That was that was killer fun. But Fernwood tonight taught me Fred's ability to uh, spin gold out of dross, and uh, he did it just uh, effortlessly. You never saw any effort in Freddie whatsoever. It just poured out of him this amazing craziness. Uh, uh, every time I worked with him, it was just an extreme pleasure. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and such brilliant work you guys did. So, okay, so Saturday Night Live, how did that happen? Uh, I guess I pissed somebody off. No, I mean getting on it, not getting That's off. That's what I mean. <laughs> they really hated me. They got me on this. No, I was... Uh, <laughs> 
I was juggling two. Uh, first of all, Lauren had offered me a writing job in the show two years earlier, and I said I was just off of writing Burn But Tonight, and said, I can write a funny TV show in LA without having to move to New York. Uh, so he went, okay. So uh, I was juggling two job offers. It, it sounds lunatic to me to say this, but it's actually true. I was being offered the job as the first host of Morning Edition on NPR and job in the as a cast member on Saturday Night Live. So I went for a meeting in Washington first, and then I said, uh, I think I'm taking the other job, but I'll let you know. And uh, so I decided to do that, go, go to New York and do that. And uh, the very first time I met Lauren, uh, it was in the audience of the Winter Garden Theater where Gilda Live, a show, a Broadway show based on Gilda's sketches, so the sketches Gilda started, was playing. And it's an empty theater in the afternoon. And uh, I walk in and sit on an audience seat and Lauren is one row ahead of me. And he says, you know, I've, I've never hired a male Jew for the company before. I've always gone for the Chicago Catholic thing. And I realized wow. I was in a very long year. Wow. Did he really say that to you? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. 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 I, and it was, and it was, it was fair warning department. So, so top three nightmares. I mean, so what, what, what was, uh, it, it, what, what was horrible? Well, I, I, I try, I try not to go into it too much in detail when I talk to people because it's like I lived it once. Um, was, was there anything wonderful about it? Was there any, did anything? Yeah, feel it ended. That bad, huh? Wow. But, yeah. you, but you came back again. You did a couple years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am. I, I, this is an example. I thought of this when Bill Clinton got caught with the Monica Lewinsky thing. A whole category of smart people doing stupid things. And for punishment kind of thing? Well, no. No, just thinking that it would be different. Lauren was gone. Dick Ebersol was there running the show. Uh, the, the band, Spinal Tap, had guests on the show when the movie came out. Right. And it seemed not quite as um, feral, uh, not, not quite as um, devilish um, in, its, in its behavior. And so I thought, ah, all right. I, the first time didn't go well, but this, you know, one rarely gets a second chance at this stuff. This right. might be okay. And I was going with Chris yeah. and Marty Short. And yeah. so I thought, well, we'll see. Um, and it was bad and a different, you know, the, the, the thing I will give that credit show for is it can be bad in different ways. Mm. <laughs> it can be unpleasant in a number of different ways. And so it was. And so uh, uh, I had a meeting with, uh, after the show with Dick Ebersol, uh, it was January 13th, 1985 at 1.43 in the morning. Why would that be? <laughs> and uh, you know, that's like freedom. And uh, he said, wow. you're, you're not happy here. I said, Yo, you're absolutely right. And I ticked off a couple of reasons. He said, well, maybe you'd like to leave. And I said, yep, yeah, maybe you'd like to pay me for the rest of the season. Which, you know, I wish I could be that ballsy in negotiation all the time because I could fire a lot of people. 
but uh, I was uh, so full of uh, relief that I was going to be getting out that I thought, do it, do it. And then um, wow. I got a phone call uh, on Monday, on the following Monday, uh, from the, somebody at the Associated Press. Mm -hmm. and, uh, this is how every once in a while something good can come out of your mouth if you don't think about it first. <laughs> And he said, uh, I think it was a he, he said, uh, we're hearing that uh, you're leaving Saturday Night Live and the reason they're giving is creative differences. Is that right? And I said, without a, without a beat and without a thought. Yeah, that's right. I was creative and they were different. <laughs> what are you going to do? That's pretty perfect, actually. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty. Harry, I mean, it, it was no, it was no slam on Chris and Marty or anything, or or uh, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus or uh, the other uh, Mary Gross or and uh, Pamela Stevenson. It was no slam on them, but it was just <laughs> hard place, hard place to work. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, you're not the first person or the last to say that, I'm sure. Um, oh, the number of people working on that show who have uh, really great vicious uh, impersonations of Lauren, it would be a great child of evening. The Lauren's, an evening of Lauren Michaels. <laughs> so speaking of impersonations, when did you discover that you could do that? And do you remember what your first one was? Uh, I remember doing these little fake radio shows uh, on my father's tape reporter. I wrote some of my friends in and we do stuff. And uh, and then I play with the machine by myself. Uh, not Jeffrey Tubin style, but. Um, <laughs> but okay, so now you have such a resonant voice. When you were a little kid, did you have a little kid voice? I mean, yeah, did it I had a little kid voice. So I, I was doing these voices, which I heard in my head. And they, I'm sure my parents were amused because they all came out sounding the same. <laughs> and so years later, I, somebody made me think about this. Uh, I realized what I was doing was training my ear so that when the voice came in, it knew what it was supposed to be doing because I had the ear already in my head for, oh, he sounds like that. Wow. Yeah, that wow. So what were some of the early impressions that you did? Oh, I don't even remember. I mean, it was just people on the radio or people on TV, whatever, you know. Uh, I I, uh, I may have done people in the news, too. I don't know. But it's just people I saw or heard in the media. Uh, not friends, not, not family or anything like that. Um, uh, it was just people that I was so obsessed with radio and TV, you know, so... Uh, that's those were the voices in my head. I, I'm really interested in your way. And I was married to an impressionist um, and he. Uh, French impressionist or regular? No. Uh, yeah, he 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 was a Letterman's head monologue writer for a while. And and, uh, and he's a one Gabe Abelson, a wonderful um, impressionist. And he Homer and Marge was his bread and butter for a good long time. Um, but he would try to talk to me about his way into a voice. Mm -hmm. and. Sometimes I know a lot of impressionists get a voice because they hear somebody else doing it. Like Kevin Pollack was saying that he got his Christopher Walken. Was it him? I can't, or maybe somebody said they heard his, but sometimes people get it from hearing another mm -hmm. impressionist doing a voice. What's your way into a voice? Well, it's different. It, it, uh, I, I tend to not work too hard at it, although I'm now having to work on, on Biden. 
Uh, but uh, like, you got it? Do, do you have no, it? No, 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 nowhere near. But I mean, the other guy, uh, <laughs> I got, you know, from having heard him over the years, and it just, it, it, uh, it was easy to do him. It has been easy to do him. The, the nuances of the Queen's accent have been the thing that I think have thought most about because people normally, when they think of a New York accent, they think of something like that. But he's got this Queen's accent that is like so totally weird. Can you uh, give us a note? Well, Jed, he does a great Jed. <laughs> Jed. Who says Jed? He does. You know, he does a great Jed. Uh, but I, what you were talking about, um, I realized sometimes the people you're doing mm -hmm. are doing people. <laughs> so, for example, I did, there was a, a guy, you'll remember him, some of the kids won't, but you'll remember him, Dick Clark, who had this 48-year career on television, <laughs> a, a popular music show called American Bandstand, and then some other things, too. Um, and uh, I did a thing uh, when they lowered the voting age in uh, 1988. Mm -hmm. ABC did a special. And I was hired to do a, a piece uh, I did, uh, Dick Clark's American Voting Awards. And because uh, <laughs> Dick made up all these award shows. And I, I played Dick Clark. And the day after the show aired, I got a letter from Dick Clark Productions. And it was... Uh, signed by Dick Clark. And he said, I saw you doing, and he puts his name in quotes, Dick Clark on TV. <laughs> and I realized you were doing uh, the guy that I sort of modeled myself after coming up in the business. And if you, I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about, but you can give me a call. So I called him up and he said, did you understand that at all? I said, yeah, Arthur Godfrey. Wow. He was then and now, the person who had been on the air every week the most. He wow. Had three hours a day on, the, on network radio, three different hour-long shows on network TV every week. He was omnipresent. And wow. he had this easy-going kind of voice that then Dick Clark just took that kind of rhythm. And the other guy was uh, Tom Snyder, who had a late-night talk show for many years. Danny Aykroyd did an impression of it. And I realized... Tom Snyder, he would sit, when you could hold a cigarette on television, he would sit there holding a cigarette, kind of like this, and he was doing Edward R. Murrow. Oh my God, that's so crazy. So if you can figure out who they're doing, that's a really good way in. Wow, that that's very cool. And it kind of plays with the other thing. I really like that. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at the time and I'm panicking because I have too much to talk to you about. Yeah. Before you're doing, tell us about the show you're doing today with, with your fantastic, amazing, talented, wonderful, beloved wife, Judith Owen. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that for a sec. Well, what we're doing in New Orleans, what people are doing is is house music and porch music and music in the intersections, you know, um, musicians. You're, you're performing live outside and yeah. there'll, there'll, there'll be audience there? There'll be, there'll be an audience. There's a, a, a trombone player in town named Rick Trollson who has a house whose front yard faces a park. And so people bring their lawn chairs, sit in the park. The great thing about it is we went to one a couple of weeks ago and we're thrilled by it. Uh, the people who want to talk, who usually spoil it uh, in a club, sit way in the back near the church. And the people who want to hear the music are in the front of the park, right next, right across the street from the, from the 
from the yard. Um, and, you know, it, the city is, and I was telling somebody about it the other night, and they said, oh, we have a porch concert in our neighborhood. And it's like, that's, what, that's what's keeping this place alive right now. Uh, so Judith, it's Judith uh, and her wizard accompanist, uh, Pedro Segundo. And, we love Pedro. Yeah, yeah. And I'm playing bass. I'm, I'm sitting in on bass uh, because Lee Sklar isn't here. So. <laughs> we love Lee. Okay, so that's a great segue, you playing bass. This is Spinal Tap. How the hell did this happen? How did this happen? It was part of a sketch. Spinal Tap was part of a sketch for a, a TV pilot that uh, Rob executive produced, Rob Reiner and I produced, and Chris and Tom Leopold. Love Tom Leopold. Yeah. So Tom and Chris were on the writing staff. And it was, uh, it was a clever idea for a show. Uh, opening shot is you're behind a guy in a bar, in a barca lounger uh, with a remote in his hand. And uh, there's a TV in front of him and he's pressing the remote and the picture changes as he does. And now we go into the TV and there's a series of sketches of parodies of TV stuff. And of course, sketches very often have great beginnings and very good middles and horrible endings. <laughs> this gave us the ability to get out of the ending. <laughs> So it was a really good format, and uh -huh. uh, and it went through. Saturday the Night Live should try that on for size. Who should? Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, the only network television show without major network competition in the history of American television. Is that true? Anything opposite it on on CBS or ABC? Maybe that's why it survived. Anyway, <laughs> the the. Uh, because advertisers need to reach kids on Saturday night. Uh, there was a sketch that made fun of, uh, of a show that was on NBC at that time called Midnight Special, where bands would appear. It was hosted by a guy called Wolfman Jack, a DJ. Oh, yeah. So Rob played Wolfman Jack. We played the <laughs> band. We made up this band called Spinal Tap. Uh, and we wrote a song called uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare. And while we're doing it, while we're taping it, uh, sort of in the aftermath of it, we thought, maybe we should do something else with these characters. Cut to uh, Rob gets a little uh, first look deal, first uh, draft script deal with a company called Marble Arch. It was run by Lou, Sir Lou Grade, which everybody called him Sir Lou Grade. Uh, <laughs> and uh, not everybody, sorry. Uh, and we tried writing a script for two or three days and thought, this is stupid. Nobody will be able to read this and understand it. Let's go make, let's go take the money and make a 20 minute demo of it. And we made a 20 minute demo with a lot of the songs and a lot of the jokes and chopped it around to studios. And everybody, when, the, when we showed it to them and the lights came up, they were like, uh, what would that be? <laughs> Thankfully, Norman got to be, Norman Lear got to be head of Embassy Pictures for an hour and a half and uh, greenlit the movie while he was there. Wow, I didn't know that, that's amazing. That's the only way it got done. And we were, there were so many guillotine blades falling right behind us. Two weeks before it's released, we're told by the guy who was Norman's partner, but stayed when Norman left. If uh, the first two critics who see this don't like it, this movie's not getting released. Wow. I hope he lost his job, no. Nobody lost their job. And the marketing director uh, sets us down and says, guys, guys, you think you have to like 
sometime in the first 30 seconds wink so people know you're kidding? And, no. No, we don't. No, we don't think so. No, I mean, it, it, was, it was just one fucking thing after another. It's a miracle that movie got made and came out. Really. You guys know what, when you were doing it, did you have any clue? You couldn't possibly have a clue what was going to happen with it. Well, when we, were, when we were talking to the studio guys, one or another of us would say, this is not a new story. Everyone who reads Rolling Stone knows this stuff. This, <laughs> these stories have been shoved down America, young America's throat now for the last 15 years. It, it's, you know, it will have, because they would say rock and roll movies don't make any money. Trust us, this, this is known to people, this stuff. This is not a movie about life in outer space. Uh, <laughs> well, but nobody knows really that whether something's gonna have a life or not, you know? You just do your best. So Saturday Night Live, not so fun. I'm thinking this really fun. The most fun in the world. Most fun in the world. Just, just endless fun. Well, I mean, I had never really I didn't work in improv groups. The Credibility Gap wrote everything we did. So uh, improv was, was I, I went and saw a lot of improv and knew a lot of improv actors and sort of mm -hmm. heard what the thing was, what the what you got taught when you went to improv training. First mm -hmm. thing you learn is it's not about talking, it's about listening, uh, as opposed to ad-libbing, which is about talking. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, it was a... a, a uh, a live, a, a tightrope uh, act for me to be improving because I'd never done it before, but we didn't do it, didn't decide, let's do an improv movie. We did it because that's the way it would look like a documentary. Right, right, right. A documentary is possible and, and doing it improv style gave it that herky-jerky kind of rhythm that real stuff has as opposed to, you say your line now, I say my line now, you know. Right. Um. Okay, so I, I, I mean, I, I could, and so how was it like touring as a rock band? Like, great, 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 fucking brilliant. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you know, stand on stage, people, half the audience was like singing the lyrics along with us by that point. Yeah. And we're playing real loud and, uh, you know, making fools of ourselves. Um, and then coming backstage to see the, the, uh, the gals from the audience who, uh, we're waiting for us, at which point I learned that they self-select based on the lyrics of your most popular song, and ours was Big Bottom. <laughs> you had your old brand of groupies, huh? Yeah. That's hysterical. All right, so so a collaboration that, that goes on and on. I'm, I'm racing now. So A Mighty Wind. Wonderful. Oh my. Yeah, again, huge fun. And again, uh, Chris said the day before that performance, the, the performance is the centerpiece right. of the film, we're not pre-recording and we're not doing anything in post. What you do then is what is in the film. Wow. You know, Chris, Michael and I had had the experience of performing that way together and, and not having help. Uh, you know, it's on up down to us. Right. But other people in that show never had. And I, I was just... It was fun to be playing, but it was much more fun to watch these people. My God, how they rode to the fucking occasion with their instruments and with their with their singing. And I just was like amazed that wow. this was what was happening because Chris put them on everybody under pressure. This is it. 
And they all wrote, you know, all being show business pros, they rose to the occasion spectacularly. And it was, it was just a wonderful thing. And then we had a little tour of, of, of everybody in that thing. And I would be still doing that. That was just ridiculous fun. Ridiculous fun. Oh my, okay. And then for your consideration. That was, that was uh, the saddest of all of those pictures. It was most, you know, deeply rooted in the, in the actor's fantasy of this time, maybe they'll like me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it was the first time, uh, only time so far that I've gotten to work with Catherine O'Hara. You know, oh. done, done scenes with her, and I just, uh, I had to scrape myself off the floor. I was, you know, just a little, 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 little liquid pile being in the same scene with Catherine. She's just so amazing. I just binged Schitt's Creek. Uh, I, I just can't even. I just, yeah, can't yeah. yeah well, uh, they're, all, they're all great, and I'm, I'm so glad that Chris Elliott is. Get has finally gotten a great part again, you know. Christmas and money, amazing. Um, oh, I, I I won't waste your time with this, but after the show, I'll tell you one thing about Chris Elliott. Oh no, come on! You, oh, all right, so the the Letterman show. All right, the Letterman show. Chris Elliott does. Uh, William Shatner had done a version of Rocket Man in the late seventies. <laughs> William Shatner style. Yeah. Overly. You know, overacted, too many shots, too, too much stuff, and not singing, just with a cigarette. <laughs> Rocket man, and Chris Elliott, fucking Chris Elliott, does it shot for shot, pose for pose, and the Letterman show. Not a, you know, four people in the world knew what he was doing because they didn't introduce it as William Shatner a thing. He just came out and did it. It was just. Ballsiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, pretty pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. So we, uh, we're here. We, we we have to talk about The Simpsons now. I, I, at last count, I think twenty one. Boy, how how many characters on The Simpsons? I don't know. I don't some know. some crazy. Somebody, count, somebody counted and said twenty three, but I don't know. Okay, so how 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 did this happen for you? How did you become? How did you move into that? Um, I met Matt Groening on a Hollywood street corner. No, this is okay. And uh, <laughs> there was a newsstand at Hollywood and uh, Martel, uh, sorry, uh, Melrose and Martel. And uh, we met at that newsstand. He had been writing this uh, comic strip and also a, a record review column for the LA Reader, except he never reviewed records. It was a column about what he was doing instead of reviewing records that week. And he said to me, I like your radio show. And I said, I like your column. And three years later, I got a call. Uh, Matt's doing his cartoon show. Would like you to do it. And I, said, I don't want to do a cartoon show. And uh, they called a couple of times, and uh, finally, I thought, oh, "Okay." I mean, it was Fox. Nobody, you know, nobody. Right, right. You needed a twenty. Hmm? what years ago? It's twenty something years ago, right? Thirty-two years ago. Oh, stop. Sorry, sorry about that. Oh my God. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was Fox, you know, so it was, again, it was like one of those things, a six week thing maybe, uh, and uh, suddenly it just takes off. Uh, and when you started, what, what what was your first, what was your first voice? What was your first? Oh, I have no idea. No, uh, I mean, what, did you have, you had a lot of characters from the get go? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why well, they yeah, 
Matt was a fan of my radio show where he heard me do a lot, a lot of characters. I think that was the point. They'd already cast the family. Um, so Mr. Burns was already on. Ned Flanders was already on. Um, what do you mean already on? No, I mean I, I mean, they, I mean, they were characters from the get-go, I assume. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you just see a line in the script. This guy is this and this guy is this. We didn't see drawings. I had no idea what they looked like. Uh, so, you know, and it was eight months before the show went on the air. So we did the whole first season without really seeing what they looked like. So how, Harry, how, how Mr. Burns, how do you make a decision what he's going to sound like? You're not looking at him. You're not seeing anything. How are you making a decision? Uh, the key is it's not a decision. Uh, it doesn't use the thinking part of your brain. It's just an in intuitive leap. You just, wow. yeah, uh, because you'll, you'll go crazy trying to, Ooh, you know, to think about it is like, there's nothing to think about. It's like, there's no data to analyze, you know, so you might as well just go for it. And uh, if they don't like it, you try something else. Um, really, that's, that's. Did you, did, were any of them challenging for you or would they just come? Uh, they, they just came. Uh, the, Dr. Marvin Rowe was challenging to do because he was uh, written as a guy with a totally irritating manner. Uh, <laughs> he was a family therapist with a totally irritating manner. And I did him. Uh, with Can you a, give us a little? Dr. Marvin Rowe sounded like this. <laughs> and at the time, I really didn't uh, know how to not make that not hurt. <laughs> so I was kind of glad when they killed him off. Um, so can you give us a little Ned Flanders? You know, somebody recently uh, told this story. I didn't have no memory of it, but he said I was, he was at, I think on the writing staff, he said I was at the read through where the first Flanders, when Flanders first appeared. Mm -hmm. He said it was uh, written as uh, Homer says something and, and Flanders says in the right in the script, okie dokie. And he says, and I remember you, when it came to your turn, you said, Oakley Doakley, neighbor. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Um, I love that you, uh, you're you so in touch with your instincts, which is clearly uh, what has driven so much of your brilliance. And um, I am so honored uh, and thrilled to have spent this time with you. It's been a long time coming. I'm, I'm just an enormous fan. And you're Thank just you. lovely as you are funny, which is so nice. And, you. um, and you've written three books and you've, you're a journalist. I mean, there's like so much to you that we haven't even touched on. So hopefully um, you'll come back sometime and we can talk more when, you don't, when you're not going off to do well, a I'm not plugging this. Wait, okay, okay, so let's do that again. The, the, the many, wait, the many moods of, Donald Trump. Yeah, it, that's, the, that's the first. You have to laugh when you say it. That's the, the many moods of Donald Trump. The first joke is, of course, there's only one mood. Fuck me, fuck you. <laughs> that's his mood. So we'll be looking for it on October 30th. That we can get the CD. We can stream it today. The concert, they can find it how? Uh, I think... On Judith's Facebook page, Judith's maybe? Facebook page, probably, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll post yeah. this. Harry, thank you so much. I adore you. I adore your beautiful wife, your wonderful wife. And um, uh, thank you. Oh, and I'm still doing my radio show on public radio. Station. Oh, and the show. Yeah. Okay. So where where can we find that in LA? Uh, online on uh, harryshare.com. Okay. On harryshare.com, we can find, I'm guessing, pretty much everything of yours. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'll give them a link for that so they can go to it. Okay. 
have a wonderful rest of your day. Have a fun Thank concert. You. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.